Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. Every four years in Ontario, there's a somewhat unusual election. Ontario lawyers elect the benchers who will sit in convocation and run the Law Society of Ontario. It's a little more interesting than it sounds. Rebecca Durkin is running to be elected as a bencher, and she seems, frankly, like the perfect candidate. She acts as general counsel, prosecution counsel, and independent legal counsel to several Ontario regulators and is a co-author of prosecuting and defending professional regulation cases. In this conversation, we talk about what ventures do, what self-regulation is, why it's important, why this election is so important and so controversial, and we also talk about the Boston Marathon. This is her story. A quick programming note, at around the 50-second mark of this recording, you'll suddenly hear somebody else's voice bleed into the conversation. For various technical reasons, which are too boring to get into and which are entirely my fault, I wasn't able to edit out that extraneous voice. Apologies to Rebecca for that, and shout out to David Steinberg for the cameo. On with the show. All right, Rebecca Durkin, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Bob. It's so lovely to see you again. Likewise, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. For listeners who don't know, what is a bencher? A bencher is a director of a board, a board that governs the regulator for lawyers and paralegals in Ontario. We call the board convocation. We call the directors benchers. We call the chair treasurer. We we like we like fancy words. We like dressing things up. We do right? like dressing. It's good. We do like dressing nice. things up. So yeah, so that's what ventures. Okay, and so we describe lawyers as self-regulated in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean exactly? So essentially, what it means is that the profession uh, has a voice in how it's regulated. The, the trend is to calling it more now professional regulation as opposed to self-regulation, because there is a recognition that professions that are regulated are regulated because they pose a risk to the public. And so they need regulation. And Ontario, Canada, but Ontario still is kind of the last bastion, really is held on to this model where the most effective an efficacious model of regulation is having the people who know the profession around the table. But there has been a concern that there's been a little too much profession focus and public focus. So this trend is to say, let's not call it self-regulation. Let's not focus just on the profession itself. Let's call it professional regulation and recognize that it's more than just the profession that's around that table, but they're, of course, important members of the public around that table. Right. And so lawyers being self-regulated or, mm-hmm. or subject to professional regulation. That's yep. not unique to lawyers. So th- there are other professions in Ontario that are also self-regulated. Definitely. Um, okay. definitely. Uh, 26 health colleges, college teachers, social workers, uh, Ontario, still for the most part across Canada, but they're kind of going a bit differently, taking some different streams. But Ontario is still a real bastion for this self traditional self-regulatory model. So that was an interesting term that you used there, I guess one which I hadn't really thought of uh, before, which is that the profession, and I guess other professions, that they pose a risk to the public. Yeah. So could we, how do we 
describe that risk and, and, and why is sort of self-regulation thought to be an appropriate way of, of mitigating that risk? Sure. There are certain professions that are not regulated, right? Paramedics. Paramedics are not regulated in Ontario. Clearly have a great potential for risk and harm, but are not regulated because the, the government decided, yes, there's a, you pose a risk of harm to the public, but you're regulated in an alternative way, basically through physicians and base hospitals. But a prof- there's no need to regulate a profession or an industry unless it really does pose some risk, right? Like why introduce that red tape if there is not a risk? So what the government, and this is a really important part of the equation, what the government decides is that if a profession does pose a risk to the public, and so for our profession, because of the inherent vulnerability between a lot of people seeking legal services and those that can provide it because of the uh, financial uh, quantum um, that's usually exchanged for our services, that there is, and and the role that lawyers can play and are being fluent in the legal world, and that there's that imbalance, our profession is regulated because we can inflict harm, that there needs to be certain parameters as to who can become a lawyer, what standards are imposed upon lawyers, that they are subject to a complaint-based system, these sort of hallmarks of regulated professions. So our profession met that threshold. Physicians, nurses, all the others, they have that sort of, that mindset. So, and because they pose a risk, they need to be regulated. Down in the States, a lot of the regulation of lawyers is through the boards, more government-based. Ontario, and this is back in the 60s, they decided, no, the most effective way to regulate a profession is to have members of the profession around that table because they themselves know the risks. They themselves know the bad actors. They themselves can identify what, in fact, are the appropriate standards to keep the public protected as opposed to enhancing the, 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 the ambit or the, or the prestige of the profession. So that was the, that's the DNA as to why you bring members of the profession around the table, why they're the most efficient um, and hopefully efficacious way to regulate the profession. But it's pre- there's, it's, there's a tension there, right? You're having them around the table. You're giving them the right to regulate themselves, to set the entry to practice requirements, to set the standards, to discipline. But the quid pro quo is that they're doing so to protect the public and not to protect their own. Right. And it's interesting because I, I feel like that for somebody who who's not a member of, of this profession or, or another profession, they may look at this whole sort of structure with a little bit of a cynical eye and say like, well, like, fine. So we've handed the protection over to the lawyer. So what they're going to do inevitably is sort of protect themselves first mm-hmm. and then protect the, or, you know, it, to the extent they consider the public. Uh, they'll be sort of a subordinate consideration. So there's sort of an onus on people who are going to perform that role of venture of being willing to sort of adopt that kind of broader lens and really sublimate their own interests as lawyers in favor of protecting the public. You nailed it. And I'd say I'd go a little further, not just willing to, um, committing to, having to. Right. Because a venture is a director, those corporate fiduciary duties attach to directors, to ventures, namely avoiding and declaring any conflict of interest. So when you can't put off, you can't take off your lawyer or paralegal hat, uh, you're on that table, you are obligated to declare conflict and stand aside for that agenda item. You are obligated to put the interests of the law society first. 
you, the statutory mandate of the of the law site is quite clear, and you always have to put that at the forefront as opposed to your own interest or your professional interest. Um, there is a duty, obviously, to speak with one voice. So that hopefully it would be a vigorous debate around that table in a respectful manner. But the end result is even if you weren't advocating for that position, you support the decision of that board because if certain benchers slash directors start splintering off and saying this passed, but I don't agree with it and here's why, that doesn't provide clarity to the professions. That provides confusion to the public and clearly, you know, derogates from that duty to, again, putting the interest of the society first and not yourself or your profession. So there is a lot of good reason why public confidence in this model isn't as robust as ideally it should be. I'm not focusing on the law society, but, you know, there have been, uh, and it's not just because this is my job, there are objectively such juicy reports, governance reports that have happened in the past five years across Canada of regulators, of basically the public saying, forget it, the profession saying, we don't trust you. And this is what I really try to remind people, the government stepping in, because when you always hear about this, you know, we're self-regulated, we're independent. And I always remind them like, no, it's the Law Society Act that's created through statute, that's passed by the legislature. That's the vehicle through which all this happens. And if the if a government loses confidence in a profession's ability to regulate itself, they step in and they change things around. And this has been happening across the country. And around the world, right? Like there are, oh, yeah. I, I think in the UK, for example, or in England, the lawyers, they lost their ability to write the legal profession, the medical profession, completely lost their ability to this self-regulatory model that the right. directors were now appointed. They got rid of elections reduced the size, they created an overseer of the regulators, complete overhaul, again, because of lack of confidence that the professions, in that case, the lawyers, were actually serving and protecting the public interest, as opposed to their own professional interest. Right. So the, this privilege of self-regulation is something that, that lawyers could lose. Oh, definitely. Um, and for some reason, which we'll explore, You've decided to run for venture. <laughs> You've decided to immerse yourself into this tension-filled mm-hmm. arena. And and so actually, I guess just in terms of uh, disclosure for, for listeners, so I think actually you and I first met when we both ran for venture yeah. uh, in 2015. So I lost. So I don't have any insight to provide to people about how to win an election. I, I can tell you how to lose a venture election. And I guess the other thing I should disclose is uh, in terms of this election, I would vote for you like twice if I could. I think you, you'd make the perfect venture <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. But let's maybe this the answer to this is, is to these two questions is related. I'd like to get an understanding of a why you decided to run as a venture and b what makes this election maybe not unique but different from previous elections. Okay, so. My sons asked the exact same question. Why are you doing this again? And it's a fair question. I hate running. I don't know if I should be saying that. I hate this process. I am the worst politician in the world. But I really, I believe I have something to offer. So my whole practice is dedicated to helping regulators. So I love this stuff. I know how important this stuff is. I am mindful what a bencher should and should not do. They're, you're essentially a director of a corporation and you make 
involved in policy decisions, but you shouldn't be getting into operational matters. I am able to bring context and trends and hopefully influence and educate the board. Um, so I think I actually genuinely could assist. So that's why I'm doing it. For this election, it's been, I was at an event last night and, and someone said, you know, this is the most consequential election in our profession's history. And I, I, I obviously don't know if I can say that. What I do can say is that uh, this is, I, I, I get the sense that a lot, a lot of people are watching because the, the sort of reality that having a voice and how one is regulated can actually be lost. I remember saying that years ago, you know, I'm like the Cassandra running around saying that can happen, that can happen. And I'm hearing a lot more people say that and acknowledge that now, which doesn't make me happy, but I love, there's a, there's a recognition now that, and, and you use the exact word, it's a privilege. There is no right. There is no um, inherent right to regulate one's own profession. It really is a privilege. So I see the consequence of when that confidence is shaken and or lost. I do believe that the regulatory model, the professional regulatory model is, is a good one of having the professions around the table. That being said, I think there's a lot of improvements that can be made. Uh, I, I do think, I think convocation is too big. I, I, I think it's way too many for your listeners. It's, you know, 40 elected lawyers, uh, five elected paralegal, and, you know, we're here to serve, protect the public. There are only eight publicly appointed members. That's a huge disparity. So I think there's a real opportunity for our regulator to be a leader in regulation and demonstrate an awareness of how important regulation is and to really commit to the professions and to the public that this model can work. But but the past four years, it's been it's been just sort of it's been a in my own words, it's been a bit dysfunctional. And and I'm not saying, you know, we're at the brink and and the AG is going to run in and rip out the Law Society Act. But I, I, I just think this toll, this erosion of confidence, it's pretty palpable. So as a member of this profession, as someone who practices in this area of law, who could hopefully bring some context and information, I, I think I can help. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think you can. And, and that's certainly part of the reason why I think you should get people's votes. That's why you get my vote. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's real value in that, that expertise that you bring right and and having that knowledge about how other professions are regulated and, and just the mechanics of regulation like because there's a lot of lawyers myself included who really don't practice in that area and have no sort of line of sight to that area and so it's difficult for us to even kind of really understand like i mean i draft contracts for a living right so like i don't have a good handle on the dynamics at play and, and the tensions at play and and the different you know stakeholders and interests that need to be addressed when decisions are made about how to regulate the profession so i, I think having your voice at the table would be fantastic and, and fantastically valuable i guess I, I mean to me the thing which marks out this election is this is it, it's the first election in living memory, whatever that means, certainly in my memory, where we have competing or contending yeah. slates of candidates. And I, I, I'm assuming, or I'm guessing that maybe that 
is an aspect of that erosion of confidence that you were uh, speaking about. It, it, could you describe sort of which, what's going on with the slates? Sure. Like, and, and which slate you're a part of? Sure. So there is a slate they previously identified as the stop SOP, SOP being the reference to the statement of principles. They now call themselves full stop. Uh, and it is a slate of several returning ventures and with some additional people who take issue. Obviously, your listeners would be best to, to, to view their materials, but they, they I think their their um catchphrase is sort of stop, bloat, stop, woke, stop, I think creep. So I get the sense that the the, the diversity um, and equity uh, initiatives have 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 um, caused some frustration. There's a there's a belief that the regulator may have gone beyond its scope. I'm, I'm assuming that's what I mean by the the bloat and creep. So that's the slate, the stop slap slate. The other group, the coalition, the good governance coalition. Um, I am a member of that. To your point, I think it's really unfortunate that there are these two groups that we're asking licensees to vote for. It, to me, it is a sign of dysfunction. When I was asked to join the coalition, I was reluctant because to me, this is a this is a sign. This is a red flag of dysfunction. This shouldn't be happening. But I'm mindful that the rules somewhat changed during the last election. Uh, the stop stops, to their credit, were incredibly effective. They basically ran a slate. They had a committed group of around three to 3,500 to 4,000 lawyers in Ontario that committed to voting for all of them. So there twenty. it was 22 members on the slate. They all got in. So this sort of calculus worked. So this coalition was created in response to this new reality, and that's how you get in. But I think it is a sign of dysfunction that you have this. You, sh you shouldn't ideally have this. But what the coalition has committed to doing, well, a few things. They've committed, A, will adhere to fiduciary duties, B, there would be no introduction, reintroduction of the statement of principles, the initiative that was defeated, that's gone. But other than that, there's been no commitment. There is no predetermined vote. We, it, It's basically do your job, do it well, do it with integrity and get out. And so that's been sort of the approach. It's, it's not as catchy as stop woke, stop bloat, stop creep. I will completely concede that. It's it's more nuanced. It's I tell everyone, you know, my goal is to let's make regulation boring again. Like, and I say that with a per, as a person who loves regulation, like I, I I marinate in this stuff. I love it. But signs of good governance are things that 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 work without worrying about it. That you know, reaching out as you said, stakeholder reaching out, policy analysis, um, staying within your statutory lane serving and protecting the public interest, looking at regulatory trends, taking landscapes uh, views to see what other, other regulators are doing and, and anticipating where risk is and allocating resources. That's what a regulator should be doing. You know, they, they shouldn't be suing the regulator. So, you know, one of the stop stoppers is currently suing the law society. Another one is suing the treasurer. It's, 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 it's the, the, and again, I don't want to get too, well, I'm going to say I don't want to get too political, and that's it's it's create. This shouldn't be political. This remember, this is an election to be a board member. <laughs> These this is to be become a board member of a regulator. This is not red states, blue states, purple states. This you know shouldn't be wearing red, make America great again, or this reference to woke 
and critical race, literally critical race theory popped up. And I'm like, this is, this is not what regulation is about. Regulation is about treating people, licensees, people who consume and, and um, purchase legal services with, with uh, respect, recognizing the diversity of the province, recognizing the diversity of the profession, recognizing the evolving needs and evolving risks that come up and need to be addressed. That's what a regulator should be doing. So, so that is what's happening with these two sort of groups. There are other individual people who are running as well. So it's not just one or the other. When people go to vote, they won't see on the voting list who is who. It's just alphabetically listed. So, so, so if, you're, if you're looking on voting day, you're not going to see them in different colors or whatever. But the short answer is this sh- ideally shouldn't be happening. This should not be happening. And uh, it, it is a sign of dysfunction of, of, of where we are. Okay. I I might let's pull on that thread a little bit because I I, okay. I I feel like I might well, I feel like I disagree with that and so the, actually the the context here for what you've just described mm-hmm. in part is so one of the full stop slate members um, is uh, Professor Bruce Party he published an op ed I believe in the National Post. Uh, last week, within the last couple of weeks. And one of the things that he had said was the law society or sorry, convocation. So the the sort of the board of directors, the collection of ventures has become or is in danger of becoming too political. Mm-hmm. The full stop slate, previously the stop, stop slate. I always feel like it's a tongue twister. They're sort of one of their driving kind of motivations was we want to stop the politicization of convocation. We want to stop the politicization of the law mm-hmm. society. I hear an echo of that in what you've just described, right? Mm-hmm. In in the sense that you describe it as unfortunate that there's these slates, that it has become this, you know, kind of figure out which team jersey you're wearing yeah. and and you know vote accord- accordingly. Despite the fact, as you note, that there isn't really like these aren't party platforms, no. right? Like you're not sort of signing up for no. a set of a fixed set of policies. And so when I hear that criticism that there's it, it's too politicized, I, I sort of my initial reaction is actually is is more along the lines of yeah, like of course it's politicized. Though like everything that a regulator does, as boring as it may be, is inevitably political in some fashion. So rather than trying to sort of mask the politics, like it would be, it strikes me that it would be more productive to, you know, sort of embrace the politics and say, yeah, like you you sort of have to pick a side here, right? Like, so statement of principles. So for listeners who, who don't know or don't recall, the statement of principles was an initiative which had been put forth by convocation before the last election. The last election was in 2019. And it was a mandated statement that lawyers would have to, when they filed their annual reports with the Law Society, uh, they would attest to the fact that they had personally adopted a statement of principles, which spoke to their obligations to enhance or or comply with the human rights code and and sort of further you know the um the achievement of of certain goals relating to diversity equity and inclusion 
I was a supporter of the statement of principles. I thought it was a good idea. I, I published things in, in favor of it. Uh, the stop stop folks didn't like it. Um, I thought their position was a little bit incoherent in a lot of ways, considering that we have an oath that we have to take as lawyers. Mm -hmm. I just saw this as sort of an extension of that oath or, or sort of a supplemental oath, for lack of a better term. In any event, they won. They got rid of the statement of principles. But at least there was that you knew where everybody stood, right? Like you could figure out, okay, either you're in favor of this or you're not, or or at least it brought to the surface the arguments. And people, you know, could sort of discuss it and say, well, actually, okay, like it, you can't make it too Manichaean, like th there's for or right. against, but there's nuance, there's a lot of context, yeah. there's a lot of stuff. We and to me, that whole discussion I thought was, and the debate was, it was toxic in a way, <laughs> right? Not a lot of great friendships came out of that whole debate. No. Probably some <laughs> friendships were destroyed. Destroyed. Yeah, but I, I thought it was productive to at least have that debate and and for these tensions to be negotiated and for you know people to make hard decisions you're doing the, the regulators are, are tasked with doing a difficult job there are sort of irreducibly complex and irreducibly irreconcilable interests at stake and somebody's gonna have to quote unquote win at the end of the day so to me sort of i'm sort of a fan of saying like let's lean into the politics rather than staying away from the politics so I, what why so, is why am i wrong <laughs> i don't know if you're wrong well the only thing i think bruce party isn't a member he's a supporter so he's not actually running so professor oh, party of Queens, yeah, okay. yeah so he's a supporter but he's a supporter he's a supporter right. okay a, a very um vocal supporter so as to why i don't kind of like this politicization because for me again this is an election to sit as a board member of a regulator of a le of legal professions. Okay, so let's just situate. We're not running for office. This is, despite what some benchers, some benchers who I really, really respect, <laughs> despite what they might believe, this isn't, um, convocation is not a parliament. You don't have a constituency. And this is really a struggle for a lot of elected professional members is that once you get elected, you're not beholden. You 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 don't you, you don't have a constituency that you have to report back to. Once you get elected as a professional member of a regulatory board, thank you very much. See you in four years. I'm there to serve and protect the public interest. the The public of Ontario is my constituency. So so a lot of benchers feel that they have a mandate. They have a political platform. That convocation is parliament. It is not. You are a director of a board. Okay. So there's I I think we need to strip down some of the um, political ambitions maybe of, of some ventures. Uh, but I think my concern is that what's happening right now is this concern that equity and diversity, and, and, and the reason I mentioned the statement of principles has gone the way that that was defeated. The stop stoppers defeated it from a governance perspective. Once a board makes a decision, it has been defeated or it's been approved. It should be left alone unless new evidence comes forth. So the stop, full stoppers have been saying that this coalition is going to come back and revive it. And as I said earlier, we've met that that's never been part of it. We've recognized, okay, that decision was made. Let's move on. But not by that, I'm not trying to insinuate that the coalition of whom are intentionally a very diverse group of people, gender, racially, profession-based, area-based, intentionally having that diversity of perspectives 
So there will be, I'm sure, a lot of passionate discussions. But what's been pretty common amongst the coalition group is this, I guess, question saying, why is equity and diversity, why is that considered a political hot potato? And so I would suggest as a regulator, that is that that's not, and I I I I still, to be frank, I don't know what they mean by woke. I don't understand what that that term keeps coming up. I don't have been able to understand their interpretation. But to label and the 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 coalition is quite committed that having a commitment to an equitable, diverse profession is better for the people of Ontario. <laughs> it 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 reflects better on the profession in of itself. It's an actuality of Ontario in of itself, and that it shouldn't be either or that. It is actually, I would suggest, a core pillar, not just the legal profession, but of every regulator to ensure that it has equitable, transparent, fair, impartial entry to practice requirements that doesn't de facto discriminate against a certain segment of the profession, that you have measures in place to ensure that once you are licensed, that there are not barriers put in place because of your genders or socioeconomic status or physical ability or, or uh, sexual orientation. So, so I don't necessarily see it as a political hot potato because to me, it's just, it's part of the DNA of being a regulator. And it's becoming, and maybe this is their concern, it is becoming much more recognized. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't push back and say that to me is it's not an example of, again, whatever they mean by wokeism, but a, a long overdue appreciation that professions are not primarily one gender or one race or one orientation. And Ontario is not predominantly one race or one gender, one orientation. There has been a, a baseline for a long time in the province and in this profession as to what it would mean. And a lot of regulators are kind of catching up. They're like, oh, wait, the profession is changing. The province is, or the decision makers of the regulator, of the profession is changing, right? And this isn't something that the people that I'm running with fear. This to me is, this is just, they're embracing this. This is a positive movement as opposed to something to be feared or ridiculed. So so that is why I say I don't see this as necessarily a, a political position for our our coalition or regulators writ large. It's just becoming part, it's becoming one of the pillars, sort of as you have fair entry to practice requirements, you have fair standards, you have attainable and recognizable and a DEI impact analysis on decisions that are made because that's real for people. And I think for a lot of people, for sorry, for certain people, it hasn't been real. It hasn't been a factor. I won't speak to them, but the coalition doesn't see it as a scary boogeyman. It's part of the reality and it should be intertwined in all policy decisions. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, as you were describing that, I'm wondering if probably the the pejorative view that the public has had for, you know, probably decades. I mean, I've I don't know if there's any empirical work done on this. I would assume would be, oh, the law society and, and convocation has been pretty clubby, right? Yeah. The, there was sort of a- Look at the name, uh, the society. The, right. <laughs> of Upper Canada. <laughs> well, Upper Canada. <laughs> as it once was. <laughs> um, that the, as the province has become more diverse, as the profession has become more diverse, that this is almost an inevitable product byproduct of that right that these tensions are coming to the fore because it is no longer that sort of set of 
you know, the same sort of 40 people who, you know, once they got in, they were incumbents and they were there for, you know, in some cases, decades. Yeah. Um, they had a certain sort of complexion in term, you know, yeah. and I mean that in a, on a variety of different axes. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of the same people who did the same thing year after year after year. Yeah. And, and they, Fair. in many cases, thought that their constituency, as, as you mentioned, was the lawyers as opposed to the public. And now as you know, the, the profession is diversifying and has become much more diverse, that that old compact, that old settlement really no longer holds. And so that's, I think, why we find ourselves in this moment of fraughtness. Is there... Is part of the problem, do you think, that these are elected positions? In other words, are people do people sort of transpose, oh, well, election means politics means, you know, contestation means, you know, partisanship. Therefore, this must also be like that. Is that, could we do something about that, do you think? Well, a lot of regulators have. So hmm. um, the largest re uh, regulator in Ontario, Ontario College of Teachers, they overhauled their governance structure a couple of years ago. And what they decided to do is that they would reduce the size of their board. They would eliminate the disparity between teachers and public appointees. So there's complete parity now. Um, and they would abandon elections. So the elected members, excuse me, the professional members are no longer elected. They go through a competency-based process where they have to demonstrate uh, their awareness of the role of the college, demonstrate those fiduciary duties we spoke of earlier. So it goes through a process. And those teachers who are appointed then are, and as long with the, the the public members who are appointed, they cannot sit on any of the college committees. So there is a separation between the board and the committee. So it's giving a whole host of other opportunities for other teachers to be appointed to the committees. This model follows what we are seeing being adopted in British Columbia for there for their over 20 health colleges. Eliminating the elections is the thing I'll zero in on because you asked about it. But it is understandably so confusing. Like what it's like I just spoke about earlier. Hi, I'm running for this. Please vote for me. Well, what are you going to do for me? Well, I, I can't do anything for you. But the other guy said he's going to do something <laughs> for me. Well, he couldn't. So, so I'm not there. He couldn't. <laughs> he's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to win. So so the whole elected model is very confusing for the public, for the professions, and sometimes for the people who actually are successful and get around the table. Not all, but some of them, because they, they do believe that they have a constituency and they want to get reelected in four years. So so you, I, I, I have seen certain, let's say, commitments that should not be happening at a regulatory level. Another example, again, during this election, and it's fascinating. So you have over 100 lawyers running for these 40 seats, which is fantastic. And you think, oh my gosh, like, because a lot of regulators, they're begging people to run. Okay, you got to give that to lawyers, they're engaged. That being said, the actual number of lawyers that vote is, is what, 20, 30%. Like it, it, it's not exactly, you know, rushing to the polling stations. But so I, when running, I get these, sometimes you get these, um, Surveys, do you remember? They get used to these surveys from associations yeah. who will put questions to, you know, will you commit to not doing X? Will you commit to doing A? And of course, you know, professional regulatory nerd over here responds and says, well, no, I can't tell you that. My role as a, as a director would be to go in with an open mind, would be to look at the data, would be to see what is in the best interest of the public, 
what is fair to the professions. And that is when, and only after I consider all of that, then I make my decision. But the whole election model uh, is predicated on these very powerful organizations seeking out positions that you will take, and then they decide to endorse you or not. So again, you can see nerd over here, my answers aren't going to exactly, you know, get everyone excited at certain organizations because I'm explaining what legally my role would be. So yes, elections are a huge, huge problem with the model. It is the model that we have now. So I'm, I'm not being Pollyanna about this. Clearly, my people might say, well, she's so disgruntled. Why is she running? Because this is our model. But I really would like to put that in front of, if I'm successful, I would like to put that in front of convocation and ask, is this the best model? I would anticipate, I'll be, I'm sure there'll be some interesting discussion on 44 other elected people um, as to their perspectives, but I'm being a bit cheeky there, but it's a huge issue. And from a regulatory trend perspective, this is being viewed as the way forward. So, so yeah, I am. Um, I could talk about this topic forever, but elections are a huge, in some situations, are a huge barrier to actually having a functioning um, and effective regulator. So depending on how this vote goes, this this might end up being the last election, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Well, yeah. To, get your votes in now, uh, folks. To, to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> depending on, on a variety of scenarios, right. timelines, it could be, it could be. Yeah, yeah. So you've been incredibly generous with your time. I, I, if I could pivot before we sort of completely wrap up, I, if I could pivot to one topic, and maybe I got this wrong, but I'm pretty sure I saw this on your Twitter. Are you training for the Boston Marathon? <gasps> Did I? Did you get my 10 bucks for you to mention that? I've, like, yeah. I'm, I'm become <laughs> that? I've become that obnoxious person that drops into every conversation. I am. I ran my first marathon last year. Okay. And uh, I came home wrecked, wrecked, like wrecked. And my husband said, uh, looked at my time. He said, I think you qualified for Boston. And I gave him a look like, this is not the time to make fun of me. So, but all credit to my husband. He's the one that said, yeah, you qualified. So I qualified, kid you not, by seven seconds. So I made the cutoff by seven seconds to all women out there, there are so many advantages to getting older, one of which is your qualification time for Boston. It gets higher. Uh, so yeah, I'm running in Boston next month. That's amazing. So yeah. I'm this this endlessly fascinates me because as you just described, like when you finished that, and sorry, just so I'm clear, that was your first ever marathon? Yeah. Like you yeah. ran, okay. So mm-hmm. kudos to you. Thank you. you. Not Thank only you. did you run your first marathon, <laughs> nicely done, but you qualified. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. the Boston Marathon. I mean, that's incredible. But as you described it, you were wrecked. Like, ex- can you explain to me the psychology of wanting to run marathons? Because oh like, it just seems like punishment to me. So I've never, I'm not one of these natural born runners. I, uh, you know, I, you know, those, you know, those gazelles you see, I am not one of those ever. You and me both. <laughs> oh my God. Ugliest runner ever. But my dad was a runner. So he, mm. he was a really great marathoner. And he blew his knee. He qualified for Boston and he blew his knee. And I was going to run. My goal was to run one before I was 30. And that came and went. And then before I'm 40 and that came and went. I'm like, okay, I got to do this. So my brother ran it a couple years ago and kind of inspired me. So I said, let's do this. Time's ticking. I was 47 last year. So ran and an amazing, amazing girlfriend who would get me out of bed in the morning, meet me in the corner and saying, let's do this. So she was my inspiration. And yeah, did it, 
I'm not going to lie at around the half point. I'm like, I'm done. I'm bored. There's like a friend's house around the corner. So this was not like this chariots of fire moment. And I'm just, no, it was just like, I wanted to stop all on the way. But then I was doing okay until the last 7K. And have you ever heard the wall? Like when someone yeah. runners hit the wall, oh, now I know what that means. Yeah. I huh. just, it was, it was, so it's, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't elegant or right. <laughs> remotely Olympian, but I got her done. It was, it was, I got to say, it felt really good. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so a month out from the Boston Marathon, like what does your week look like? Like, what are you doing Training wise. Yeah. Yeah. So in the morning, so I have my, I have actually my printed up plan. So I, I, most mornings during the week, I run between six to 10 miles. And on the weekends, I run anywhere between 14 to 20. uh, I'm sorry. Is this like a seven day a week kind of thing? So um, usually six days a week. Yeah. Yeah. So I get up early um, weekends too, because I want to have time with the boys. So I get up early to do my runs in the morning. And for me, it's kind of uh it's more almost mental than physical it's just that's sort of my that's my therapy that's my time helps me feel like I've accomplished something and then I can tackle the rest of the day but oh yeah I will be dropping if someone said they go who cares about your time for Boston like you can for the rest of your life you can just drop in oh when I qualified for Boston I'll be that obnoxious person for the rest so thank you and no embrace it Mm -hmm. please is the so if somebody in my house like decided to start running a marathon let me tell you there would be a lot of skepticism right like there would not be there would be a lot of like raised eyebrows and like so are they how is the family like are they like what is this crazy lady doing getting up six days a week running around like um do you have sort of are they cheering three boys oh yeah so three boys my youngest has there's a big hill at the end of boston called heartbreak hill so he's already planned his sign and he's a very um, sarcastic kid. So it's going to be something nasty and funny. So he's planning that one. Um, my middle teenager is, yeah, okay. You know, he sees a trip to Boston, teenager. whatever. Yeah. I got to say, though, this is my oldest, who is 17. He's really, he he said to me, he's like, mom, you're hitting your stride. And so it was sort of like he was proud. And that, that so so there, I'm not going to lie. There's some mornings I'm just like, I don't want to do this. And I thought, okay, I'm making them proud. So it's been, that's been pretty cool to witness. Yeah. Yeah. They're all going, they're all going to be there. My parents are going. Wow. Um, That's so great. Oh yeah. Again, hopefully I finish. Now I'm at the fear of, oh God, all these people are here and I'm going to be like that crumpled fetal position at mile 16, but. I have faith in you. That's going to be amazing. Hopefully, hopefully April is a a winning month on all kinds of counts, both in terms of the Boston marathon and the election. From your lips to God's ears. Thank you for we'll, this. We'll this do has it. Been we can. Really great. No, I really appreciate this, and I appreciate you taking the time and 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 being so candid about everything. And that was uh, that was really helpful for to help me understand sort of that that election dynamic. I frankly I hadn't really appreciated that, um, and so I look forward not only to your victory, um, but to the reforms that you will one day implement. Thank so, you, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to 
bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.